Good morning. Welcome to Bethany Baptist. Glad to have you with us in worship. Before I uh, dive into our text for today, um, I, I should let you know that <clears throat> I'm going to be absent for a few weeks uh, coming. Uh, one of the wonderful things about this church is that they provide for the pastoral staff a, a generous uh, vacation allotment each year. And for the next two weeks, my wife and I are going to be on vacation. Is that okay with you? Amen. So we're excited to um, get out of town and, and rest and relax and look forward to that. And I'm so thankful that we have a wonderful team here at Bethany. And so in the coming weeks, you will hear from Pastor Casey again, and you'll also hear from Jeremiah, our youth ministry director. And then we also have a missionary who's coming uh, at the beginning of next month, and so things will be covered. When I return from that vacation, I will be in the office for about three days, and then uh, Rick Bruggeman and myself will be joining uh, Pastor Kevin Hearn. Some of you know him uh, from Central Point, Oregon, and two guys from a church in Hillsboro. And we will be uh, traveling to Cuba to teach the final course of a two-year pastor training program in partnership with Corbin University that we began four years ago. Now, why did it take four years to complete a two-year pastor training program? Because of the pandemic. And so we had a long pause in the middle of that, and uh, it will be thrilling. I think on March 9th, we fly over there, teach this final course, graduate these uh, about 30 uh, church leaders who love God and are being used of God in the work there in Cuba, and yet they have no training for ministry at all. And so it's been a blessing to go and partner with Corbin University and provide uh, a, a two-year training program for them. And when I come back, I'll share with you a bit about how that looks. That may be wrapping up uh, six years of ministry in Cuba for our church as the things have gotten more and more and more difficult uh, there. But again, I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, would you take your Bibles and open them with me to Philippians chapter 3? Uh, we began a few months ago working our way through the book of Philippians. Uh, it's been a slow, intentional walk uh, through this book. And last Sunday, we looked at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. This morning, my desire is to pick it up at verse 12 and do a smaller portion, just uh, covering down through verse 16. In 1741, John Wesley preached a sermon on the passage we will look at together this morning. Wesley titled that sermon, Christian Perfection. And that sermon has become, over uh, the last almost uh, 300 years, a dividing line among evangelical believers. By evangelical, I mean Bible-believing, Christ-honoring uh, people of faith. The dividing line exists in evangelicalism between Reformed believers or Calvinistic believers and between Wesleyan groups uh, proceeding from the teaching ministry of John Wesley 
on the matter of sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. These two groups are, are both believe they'll all be in heaven together. But on the, how a believer becomes holy in this world, they see these things differently. And Wesley's sermon in 1741 became a dividing line because in that sermon, John Wesley taught that a believer in Christ could achieve a state of sinlessness while living on earth. He came to that conclusion because he noticed that in the passage we'll look at today, the Apostle Paul refers to perfection twice. Once in verse 12, where Paul says, I am not perfect. And again in verse 15, where Paul seems to say, I am perfect. And as Wesley wrestled with how to reconcile this paradox, he came to the conclusion that the Christian must be imperfect in one sense in this life and perfect in another. He saw the imperfections as a Christian struggle with mistakes, the fact that we often do the wrong thing, with ignorance, that we don't always know the rules, and with the fact that Christians will battle with temptation to sin throughout life. But Wesley concluded that that same believer could be delivered from those things and arrive at a state of sinless perfection in this life. The Reformed Calvinists responded to Wesley's teachings by instead focusing on the depravity of sin in the life of all. The fact that Adam's original sin was pervasive among the human race. They focused on the lifelong struggle that we all will have while living in these bodies of flesh which somehow seem to be constantly drawn to sinful things. And the Calvinists declared that the end of sin in the life of a believer will not happen until they are with Jesus, either in heaven or at his second coming. That sermon from 300 years ago, plays itself out in the evangelical landscape of today. There are many brothers and sisters in Christ today who hold to an understanding of Scripture that they would tell you, I am sanctified ultimately. I no longer struggle with sin in this world. I have uh, at times before mentioned this story, but... About 30 years ago, a, a ministry out of Multnomah Bible College in Portland began holding pastor's prayer summits, initially here in the Willamette Valley, and eventually the pastor's prayer summit movement grew to spread across the United States and around the world. But the very first prayer summits happened here in our valley and actually took place over at the Cannon Beach Conference Center 
in Oregon. And one of the most fascinating accounts of those early prayer summits was what happened when both Reformed and Wesleyan pastors gathered for three days of intimate scripture-led prayer. Because inevitably what happens in that sense is in the safety of a room full of, of men who live your life and understand, many of the pastors began to confess their struggles with sin to pour them out before the Lord and to acknowledge them before their brothers and ask that God would forgive them and help them to do better. And an amazing thing happened about three days into the prayer summit when some of the Wesleyan brothers who were sinlessly perfect in this life began confessing their sins too. And the guys who were gathered at the summits were worried what will happen to these brothers when they go back to their churches? Because everyone knows that they have already claimed that they have arrived, that they no longer struggle with sin in this life. But I think that's what honest, open prayer before God will do. It'll help you evaluate your heart to pull back the curtain and not to hide in the shadows that which needs to be put out in the light. And what happened in those prayer retreats was men of God began to do business with what was really happening in their souls. I want to ask you a question this morning, Christian. Do you struggle with sin? And I believe the answer is so obvious that I'm going to ask you to say it out loud. Do you struggle with sin? Answer? Yes. yes. We struggle with sin. The question is, when will you and I arrive at ultimate sanctification when we are experiencing sin no longer? Answer, when we meet Jesus. Between now and then, you and I are going to live our lives on this earth battling a fight that we must fight every day with our flesh and with the enemy of our souls who tempts us as we strive to say no to sin and yes to God, but it's a battle every day. And in that battle, every one of us will stumble and fall at various times. We have to strive to grow in our walks with God. We have to yearn to become more mature in our faith, not to be sinless, but to sin less and to honor God more. This is the journey that we are all called to walk. It's the journey toward spiritual maturity. I've titled my message this morning, um, Not Christian Perfection, as John Wesley did. I've titled my message, Pressing On to Maturity. Last week, we saw Paul's transformation in the beginning of chapter 3 when he finally moves past his very religious upbringing as a, as a zealous Jew, and he puts his faith in the risen Christ and becomes born again a changed man. And Paul said of that experience that it caused him to look back at his former resume of all the religious stuff that he had done, which was a spectacular resume. He had done it all. If there was an achievement that a religious guy could achieve, Paul had already ticked those boxes. And Paul said, after truly meeting Jesus, I look back on all those efforts and I think of them as what? 
as rubbish, he said. They're refuse. They're a waste. They're empty, and they mean nothing to me any longer. I don't cling to those things. I reject them. They need to be tossed in the trash pile where they belong. He gave all that up for the surpassing value of knowing Christ personally. And I believe as he writes these next few verses, Paul is concerned that some of the believers in Philippi to whom he was writing might have mistakenly assumed that now that Paul had left Judaism behind and had turned to his personal faith in Christ, that Paul had somehow achieved perfection. And I believe Paul is writing to correct that misconception, to make sure that they don't read him wrong. Paul is going to explain in these short verses the importance of what it meant to him in his ongoing growth, in his walk with God, to press on. And we're going to see these instructions will make clear to each of us that we too need to press on to spiritual maturity. I've given you an outline in the bulletin. If you want to follow along with that, you can. You don't have to. But if it's a help to you, I I worded the opening of this section this way. It takes great resolve to grow spiritually. Let's look at verse 12 and what Paul says. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this. He had just described the beauty of knowing Christ and looking forward to his resurrection. And he said, not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfect. This is the first citation that John Wesley noted. Paul says, I'm not perfect. Not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Here's what I see in this verse. Paul knew that he had not yet arrived, that he wasn't living in sinless perfection, even though he wished, perhaps, that he could. Have you ever wished that you sinned less? How many of us have struggled with that self-talk of condemnation that says, I am a failure to God. God must not love me as he loves others because I am so aware of the fact that I mess up all the time. And we tend to hurl this kind of self-critical evaluation on our walks with God. And I understand that there is a sense in which we must own the fact that we're not perfect, that we are suffering the affliction of human existence on planet Earth. Listen to me, if you're alive and breathing, you're not perfect. You're just not. You may strive to grow. You may be better than you were. I pray that's the case. But you're not all that you will be. This is the peril of all men and women. We are broken vessels. We are incapable of living in constant obedience to the high upward call of God in Christ. And the Bible tells us this over and over again so that we won't mistake this. 
Paul has said it here, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, and Paul could be speaking for you and me there, but I want you to listen to how other biblical books describe the same thing. In the book of James, James says it this, for we all stumble in many ways. Hallelujah. That's a good verse. We all stumble in many ways. Amen? Do you, do you find all kinds of different ways to stumble? That's because you're alive on planet Earth. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And James is speaking tongue-in-cheek right there. His point is this. You can't even control your tongue in this world. How many of you godly Christians have found yourself saying critical or negative or unsavory things that even shocks you? I'm going to tell you, I've done that. We were just talking about something that happened decades ago. My wife was pregnant. We were living in Idaho. We flew to Salem for a wedding against our pediatrician's uh, advice. Like at eight months, you're not supposed to travel. So we drove here. And I'm in Kaiser, and I'm driving with my eight months pregnant wife, who's not supposed to really be that far from the hospital in Boise, where, where we lived at the time. And I'm pulling through an intersection, and a car juts right in front of me, and I smashed right into the car. And I said a bad word. And my wife wasn't so shocked by the car accident. She looked at me as if, who are you? And I'm sitting there thinking, I have no idea why I said, I don't, I don't ever say those kind of words. I don't think those kind of, where did that come from? But you know what the answer was? We all stumble in many ways. And that was my stumble that day. We ought not to fool ourselves because James knows this about ourselves. We are broken vessels. Perhaps the, the most glaring place we read of it in Scripture is what John writes in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. How clear is that? If you claim sinless perfection in this life, you are making God out to be a liar. Therefore, sinless perfection is a hope for the future for those who long for it. It will be the reality when we get to heaven where we will no longer struggle with sin and temptation. That's why heaven is gonna be so fantastic because in heaven, you're not gonna blow it anymore and neither will I. And we'll be able to be together face to face knowing that none of that negative stuff is gonna creep in. We will live our lives in perfect conformity to the will of God in heaven. That's why heaven's perfect. Because we will be perfected there. Here on earth, a different story. Here on earth, we will stumble and fall and fail. And so what does Paul say in verse 12? Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, he says, but I press on 
to make it my own. I love that. That verb, I press on, is a word that means to run or to flee or to catch someone or something. It's a word that's used of a sprinter running a race. The idea is that that person is running swiftly after something like a runner pressing toward the finish line. Picture in your mind a runner who's widening their stride, who's pumping their arms in the air, accelerating his legs and pushing out his chest for the finish line. This is what Paul says I'm doing. I press on. He's talking about an all-out effort to pursue Jesus. This was Paul's resolve. I'm giving everything I have to follow Christ. That's how I'm going to grow. I'm pursuing him. What do you do when you stumble and fall and fail in your Christian walk while on earth? Well, I hope you do this. I hope you get yourself up and brush yourself off and you keep on running. This is what Paul says he will do. I will press on. I entered the race and I'm going to run it. And even if I fall, I'm going to get up and finish because I know that Jesus has redeemed me for this purpose. I want you to notice how verse 12 ends. The ESV says, I make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The NIV expresses that phrase this way, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see, Paul understood that when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, that on that day, literally, Jesus laid his hands on Paul and put a grasp on him, and he would never let go of him for the rest of his life. And Paul said, my desire is to press on. I want to take hold of him who has taken hold of me. It's a picture of an embrace. I think that is an awesome picture of what it means to grow spiritually, to come to that place in your walk with God where Jesus is what you're holding on to and you know that Jesus is holding you at the same time. And Paul says, that's my goal. That's what I'm pressing on toward. I'm pressing on to take hold of him who has already taken hold of me. This was Paul's resolve. The next two verses are going to show us his focus. Verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Now again, it's pretty clear in these verses that Paul is using a metaphor of a race. And it's interesting that Paul quite frequently will use athletic metaphors in his letters. Uh, therefore, I conclude that Paul was a sports fan 
right? Guys, if you need a, and ladies, if you need a biblical justification for your vice when it comes to athletics, Paul might be a good example for you. I think Paul loved athletics. Consider this, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I do not box as one beating the air. Cue the Rocky music right here. Da-da-da. I do not box as one beating the air. I love this one. He, he described the struggle of the Christian life in Ephesians 6, and he said, for we do not wrestle against fl- flesh and blood. Wes, that's a good one, isn't it, brother? Those who love the sport of wrestling, Paul used that as a picture of the Christian walk. But by far, Paul's favorite athletic metaphor was a foot race. He said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a road race. Paul refers to what we know are the Isthmian Games, and the Isthmian Games were Greek competitions that took place in Corinth. They were second only to the Olympic Games, which took place in Athens, and the Corinthian Games Paul used as a metaphor when he wrote to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul will use a road race metaphor in Acts chapter 20, where he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task. The Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. To the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, Paul said, The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. To the Galatians a few chapters later, he said, You were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? Therefore, it is no surprise that Paul uses an athletic metaphor of a, a foot race to address the matter of what it means to press on in spiritual growth here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. I put in your notes a little timestamp because Paul clearly is going to think of the past, present, and future as he uses this metaphor. Regarding the past, he says, forgetting what lies behind you. What is the key to running the race well? He says you have to forget what lies behind you. And and I want to say this to you. Too many of us who name the name of Jesus live in the past. And we replay the tapes of yesterday's failures. We live enslaved to the worst days of our lives, the worst things we ever did. We hang on to those memories as an indictment against our capacity to be what God has called us to be, and we are prone to listen to the enemy of our soul, Satan, when he wants to bring those things up. And Paul says here in Philippians, don't do that. He says you need to forget 
what lies behind you. Why? Because too much of a focus on yesterday's failures will take your eyes off of the prize. He says, don't look back. Don't get distracted by yesterday's outcomes. No, Paul says, I'm going to keep my eyes on the prize by focusing on this one thing, which is my relationship with God. Can I say something? I shouldn't have asked that question. Can I say something to you? Sorry. Uh, some of you who are here in the room this morning are guilty of this sin. And that's constantly indicting yourself because of something you did once upon a time. And you beat yourself up over it. And you hold it over your own head as yet one more example of why you are unworthy of God's grace and love and why you will never be what God has intended you to be. And I want to say to you in love as your pastor that that is wrong. You are not the worst thing you've ever done. Somebody say amen to that. You are not the worst thing you've ever done. In grace, God has paid the penalty of that sin. If you have confessed it to him, it has been washed in the blood of Christ. It will never be brought up again by him toward you. It is cleansed and forgiven. And if you're hanging on to it, you are not living in comport with the grace of God, which was poured out on your life in Christ's sacrifice. And you need to stop doing that. Paul said... Forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead. The next thing he says is he moves from the past to the future. I think you got it. Did I turn it off? Ah, well, there you go. It takes a genius tech guy to figure out that the pastor hit the off button on his mic pack. Sorry about that. <clears throat> Paul moves from the past to the future. He says, straining forward to what lies ahead. So the first instruction, don't look back. And now the second instruction, keep your eyes on the goal. Biblical scholar Peter O'Brien in his commentary observes this, uh, uh, this phrase, straining forward to what lies ahead, and he says this. This is a vivid word, straining forward. It's a vivid word drawn from the games, and it pictures a runner with his eyes fixed on the goal, his hand stretching out toward it, his body bent forward as he enters the last and decisive stages of the race. Again, the present tense of the participle participle is appropriate. He's talking about the grammar that's used. The present tense is appropriate for with this verb, it powerfully describes the runner's intense desire and utmost effort to reach his goal. We need to picture it this way. What does it mean to strain forward to what lies ahead? And you need to picture this in your minds. The runner's breathing 
grows shallow and fast as he runs flat out for the finish. His legs are drumming like pistons, his feet pounding the course with painful thunder. His throat is dry. His stomach is groaning. He lays himself out for the finish. Sweat flies as his hands flail ahead. Clearly, I didn't write that from personal experience. Okay, I've never run like that. I don't like running like that. But the picture is so powerful, straining forward. Can I tell you something? In your walk with God, your job is to strain forward. And what I mean is this, God won't do that for you. You want to grow in your walk with God, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to exert yourself. God will not do the straining for you. You must do the straining. Do you want to grow to maturity? Do you want to learn to sin less and honor God more? Then put yourself into it. Strain for it. Lean into it. Pursue it, straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul said, don't look at what was behind you. Strain forward to what lies ahead of you. And what are we to do in the present day? We are to press on toward the goal. Finally, the goal comes into view. The runner spots the finish line. And, and I'm, I want to ask you, what is the goal in play here? Paul says it this way. It's the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is that upward call? Well, again, Peter O'Brien says this. It is the full and complete gaining of Christ for whose sake everything else has been counted as loss. Paul said, the goal of the upward call of God in Christ is this. As I strain to reach forward for Jesus, what do I get? I get Jesus. I get to lay my hands on him who has laid his hands on me. Kent will appreciate this uniquely. All I can hear is the Bob Dylan song pressing on over and over again. So beautiful. Talking about this passage. What does it mean? that we have to uh, strain ourselves and lean out. And the reason we do it is because we want closeness with Jesus. Spiritual maturity, church, is closeness with Jesus. You can have it, and I can have it, but it costs us something. We have to strain for it. We have to work for it, but it will come. Paul's greatest reward was going to be for him to know Jesus fully and to experience perfect fellowship with him. He described this in the verses right before our text where we ended last week. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I think that's what Paul saw as his goal the upward call of God in Christ was that he would know Christ and live with him. And one day he would die like Christ died and then be resurrected like Christ was resurrected. The charge to us 
who want to press on to spiritual maturity is this, church. This is pretty simple. Keep running. Don't quit. Regarding your feet, pick them up and put them down and pick them up and put them down. And finally, the last two verses, Paul says this. It takes wisdom to grow spiritually. Paul says, let those of us who are mature, and I want to pause here. The word mature is the same Greek word that in verse 12 was translated as perfect. It's the word teleos. And like most words, it has a range of meanings. And the translators of most of our modern translations will translate that as perfect. Not that I'm already perfect, teleos, in verse 12, but in verse 15, let those of us who are mature, same word, similar meaning, but not identical. The confusion that John Wesley had in this passage was in translating teleos the same way in 12 and 15. Grammatically not necessary, perhaps not wise. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I smile as I think of this verse. Paul is saying, let those of us who are mature, he's including himself here, let those of us who are mature think this way about what it means to press on in Christ, that we are not sinless in this world, but we want to sin less. And so let's grow Let's press on to maturity. But I believe Paul is saying, but if you think you can be sinless now, if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Do you see the condescension in Paul's response there? Reminds me of something that happened many years ago in our church. When I first became pastor, uh, some of you know that I have a very conservative understanding of divorce and remarriage and my understanding um, does not give me permission, at least in my conscience, to do a wedding ceremony if there has been a divorce in one of the couple's backgrounds and their former spouse is still alive. And I had, a, had an older couple in our church who found one another and came and they were so excited. Pastor Tim, we're going to get married and we want you to do the ceremony. And I had to meet with them and I had to say, I love you both. I'm glad that you're happy. Um, but as I read scripture, I, I just don't have freedom in my conscience to do a wedding in that situation as I read scripture. Now, I don't force my understanding on anyone else. It's not the stated position of our church. It's just for me only that I hold. But it guides. And I, I said, I can't do the wedding. I'll go to the wedding and I'll love you after the wedding and I'll be a cheerleader for your new marriage. But um, I would encourage you to find someone else to do the ceremony. And, and there was that sense of hurt, I think, because um, they had wanted me to do it, and I told them I couldn't. So what they did was um, 
the bride-to-be called the pastor of her former church here in the valley, who was an older guy, almost 80 years old, a legendary pastor, kind of well-known, like lots of people knew this guy's name. And he said to her, he said, well, why won't your pastor do the wedding? And she tried to explain, and he goes, oh, okay, I understand. He said, well, if, if he'll give permission, I'll do the ceremony. So he called me, and he said, Pastor, this is Pastor so-and-so. I'm saying, yes, brother, I know you. It's an honor to talk to you. Thank you. And he said, I understand you're not going to do the ceremony. And I said, yeah, for me, it's just a personal conviction. As I read scripture, here's how I see it. And, he, and I'm like 32 at the time, and this guy's like 80. And he literally said to me, he said, well, you're young. You'll grow later, and you'll see it differently. <laughs> and I thought, I think he just insulted me. <laughs> In fact, I'm sure he just insulted me. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fine. If you're willing to do the ceremony, I, I give you my blessing. It's just not one that I feel like I can do. I almost sense that same kind of response of Paul. <laughs> Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. But what does he say at the end? Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. This is what I see in these verses. You have to think correctly to grow correctly. I want to tell you, I ache for brothers and sisters in Christ who have grown up in the Wesleyan tradition, who have bought into the thinking that you could reach sinless perfection in this world. I just don't, it makes no sense to me. One of the brothers after the first service today, I said, well, you've probably known some brothers and sisters who were from that background. He said, yeah. He said, you know what I've found? Most of those people who say that they're sinlessly perfect are actually very immature in their faith. And I thought, well, that makes sense. It would be an immature thing to think that you've already arrived when you clearly cannot and have not. You have to think correctly to grow. Part of that, you need to take advice. We need to be willing to listen to those who are more mature. Paul is speaking to the Philippians. He says, you ought to think about this correctly. And I've given you my perspective. And if you're on a different page, God, God's going to work that out with you later. We need to be humble and willing to accept the counsel and wisdom of others. And we ought to understand that no matter how well you think you're doing in your walk with God, you are not perfect yet. You haven't fully arrived. That day will come when Jesus comes back. But for now, you must keep pressing on. You see, spiritually mature people don't think they're perfect yet. That's why those pastors at the prayer summits began confessing their sins because they knew in their heart of hearts that they weren't there yet. What are we to do? Well, don't look back. Don't beat yourself up over yesterday's failures. Rather, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep running after God. And Paul says this as his final word, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And notice again, he includes himself with his readers. Let us hold true to what we have attained. The exact sense of that verse is this. Only let us keep in step 
with what we've attained. Paul wanted them to continue together in accord with the same pursuit of knowing Christ. He told them they must not depart from the progress they had made in that pursuit. And this is a fitting word for every person who's pressing on to maturity. How do we press on? We do it in so many ways. We, we, we plant ourselves in a local church where we can have fellowship with the body of Christ. We give and serve with others. We, 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 we do it when we pray to God and when we read our Bibles. All of these are ways that we strain toward the goal. I put this verse in your notes and I, I love how fitting it is. I'm gonna ask you to read it from the screen with me as we close this morning. Let's read together. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Will you pray with me? And as we go to prayer, I just wanna prompt your heart. Where are you at? in your pursuit of Christ? Are you walking with God? Are you pressing on? Are you straining toward the goal of knowing Jesus? Know this, God will not do the straining for you. That is your job. Father in heaven, I pray this morning for us as a church family, each of us, to press on to maturity, to yearn for walking with you, that we might take hold of you as you have taken hold of us. And God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning about how we can do more to press on. I pray for the brother or sister who has to repent from living yesterday's mistakes over and over again. Lord, will you give us freedom from that? Help us to keep our eyes on the finish line. And that finish line is the Lord Jesus himself. May we take hold of him who has taken hold of us. May our closeness with Jesus be the goal of our race. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said,